In this episode, I give a talk about Two Kingdoms teaching, and in particular, the Two Kingdoms teaching from the early 16th century during the Protestant Reformation. Afterwards, we have a discussion on the topic. I hope you enjoy the talk and the conversation. In 2020, the pandemic spread across the world, and it created a lot of questions for all of us, especially as Christians. When we think we're called to worship God, to assemble together, and yet our governments are asking all of us to be careful, stay six feet apart, reduce the amount of people who are in a room together. We've had to start asking some new questions that we're not used to asking. In particular, we had to figure out how does the church and state relate to one another in maybe new ways that we haven't been used to, at least in recent history. So here, I want to kind of help answer that question, or at least tackle that question theologically, by looking back in time to the Protestant Reformation. Uh, There's actually a Protestant kind of political theology, if you want to call it that, called uh, Two Kingdoms Theology, or Two Kingdoms Doctrine. And if we kind of look at this time in history, it's unique and special and helpful. And I think we can get some helpful answers teased out by looking to our past to understand how we today as faithful Christians can engage scripture, can be good citizens, and work out our relationship to the state at least. I'll start with Martin Luther, who I suppose is the most well-known Reformation figure. What's unique about him is he's born in the Holy Roman Empire. And in the Holy Roman Empire, you have basically an emperor who's elected by seven electors. And there are a number of like miniature states, as it were, who uh, have control over their regions. It's not quite like you might think if you think of an emperor who rules an empire with an iron rod. No, he kind of ruled basically because he was allowed to rule. The electors elected him. And some of these uh, regions were actually ruled by bishops. So there's this weird reality that Martin Luther lived in where bishops had civic rule. uh, And many times the civic authorities had some sort of connection, at least to the church in ways that we're not used to today. And uh, Luther had to figure things out pretty soon because he came to be on the end of the pointy stick of the law. The Pope excommunicated him, Emperor Charles V. Uh, declared him an outlaw. And so he had to figure out what what to do. And interestingly enough, he kind of stumbled onto the answer. Uh, a prince who protected him by the name of uh, Frederick, Frederick the Wise. He was an elector, a hugely influential person in the empire. And he protected Luther and basically had an unofficial deal with the emperor Charles V. Look, you let Luther just kind of exist in my territory. Let's not make a big deal about it. And there was this sort of uneasy alliance. But Luther himself really didn't feel free to leave uh, his area of Saxony because he would possibly have been arrested and very likely could have been burnt at the stake, given the stakes during this time in history. But the one thing that I want to get at that's really interesting when he begins to work at least this out in a a different way than maybe I'm trying to get at, but in a similar way, is in 1520 he writes a treatise called The Freedom of the Christian. And while he doesn't work out this whole two kingdoms doctrine per se, he works out these this two kingdoms doctrine from the point of view of, of a Christian. Like, how does a Christian relate to the spiritual reign of Christ and the temporal reign of the princes around you? And what he says in kind of a paradoxical way is that a Christian is a perfectly free lord of all, and yet he's also a servant of all. So he's perfectly free and a servant of all. The way he works this out is, look, 
you're perfectly free spiritually. You're justified in the spirit. You have nothing that can be said against you in terms of salvation. Everything with reference to salvation is yours absolutely and freely. But as you live this life in the world uh, in which we live, everyone lives their life, you have obligations to love your neighbor, to do works that please God, to honor the emperor, and to do all these good things. And Christians should be perfectly able to do that. He probably, well, it almost seems like he's nearly word, word for word uh, citing Augustine, who, for example, wrote, Since as long as we are in this temporal life, we depend on its goods to support our living. We ought therefore to be subject in our bodies to the authorities responsible for what makes up this life, to the people who are gen generally recognized as managing human affairs. Then Augustine continues, With that part of ourselves with which we believe in God, so the soul and so on, uh, and are called to the kingdom of God, however, we should not submit to any human being who tries to deprive us of the goods which God has chosen to bestow on us for attaining eternal life. In short, everyone lives in the world. We're all under the reign of God that is mediated some way through this kind of temporal reigns of princes and powers and, prince and so on. But there is a unique way in which Christ works among Christians. There is something unique about believing in your heart that Jesus rose from the dead that makes you set apart in a unique way, even though you're still obligated in this world to pay taxes to whom taxes are due and so on. The reformers all basically pick up on this distinction, although they kind of nuance it differently. They end up formulating something called, as I noted, two kingdoms theology, which describes how God reigns over the world and the church in overlapping yet distinct ways. So, for example, a key text is Romans 13, where Paul there describes rulers uh, as those who preserve goodness and punish evil. Uh, they are appointed by God, Paul claims. Rulers have their domain of rule over all their subjects, whether Christian or not. And Paul says we all, in, in 13.5 of Romans, we all must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. But because Christians have the Holy Spirit, of course, they, got, they, can only, they obey these laws, but they also obey the law of Christ. They obey the laws of the land, but they also have an inner principle. The Holy Spirit indwells them. God, and God, through the Spirit, guides our consciences, our worship. He gives to the church in particular, as Peter Vermeule will say, the word and sacraments. The state doesn't have the word or sacraments. That's something for the church. We have the preaching of the gospel, the administration of the word through the sacraments as well. That is our proclamation and our kind of spiritual uh, duty that we have. This rule, then, of God is not divided, but it is distinguished. Since we generally know how God works um, in his church, it might be important to say a few things about how God works through human government. So, human governments receives, receive their authority from God. So, Paul says this in Romans 13, verse 1 in particular. As the apostle explains in verse 4, For he, the ruler, is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for the ruler, he, does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Note, the governor is God's servant for your good, according to Paul. The main point here is uh, that God appoints magistrates or governors to administer justice for our benefit, for our good us being the whole world, but in particular the Roman church that Paul is writing as well. Here, uh, scholar Bradford Littlejohn helps us to make sense of how the government might benefit Christians for our good, you know. 
in their mission and not just administer the external matters of the world. So he writes, Because Christ reigns over the kingdoms of this world as the one who is their redeemer, sustaining the creation order precisely so that his redemptive work can be brought to completion within it. This shapes the mission of earthly rulers. Properly speaking, the rulers of the kingdoms of this world, mediating as they do the authority of Christ, are likewise responsible for sustaining the creation order for the sake of its redemption. Their task is not to try and achieve this redemption, but neither should they be wholly indifferent to it. Note, key on, on this, uh, uh, this citation, the government does not achieve redemption. It's not even meant to attempt to do that. But the government provides the material context for the church's mission. They sustain peace and order in general. So it's not just pure anarchy and death and violence everywhere. They give the material conditions for the church to gather and worship together, to have uh, a, at least a somewhat semblance of peace so they can travel on a road to another city so they can meet at somebody's house for prayer and counsel, all this kind of stuff. So little John continues, their office is only coherent if it has a purpose or end, sustaining the creation order. And this end is only coherent if it is itself directed toward a final end, the consummation of this order. Now, this doesn't mean that rulers know that they're actually working for God, that God has appointed them, that their authority is from him. But whenever like a ruler is working to make a city better by fixing up roads or by judging rightly some sort of case, um, they are unintentionally doing good. They're doing God's will, whether they know it or not. It would be better if they knew this, and therefore a Christian magistrate will often be a better magistrate than a non-Christian magistrate in terms of knowing the particular end for which they are serving in government. But nevertheless, they do contribute, uh, they do contribute to the church's mission by creating the material conditions for worship for the church's mission to happen, namely peace and order. Of course, people fail all the time, and so even though the government has a good purpose, every human government mixes good and evil, success and failure together in its efforts. And at times, it will descend into something we might call measurably bad or unsuccessful. Like, have you ever been thinking, oh, my government is unsuccessful, or my government has corruption? If so, this is the entire history of governments. There's never been a perfect one. So, so what do we do then when there's a bad government? If, if God reigns over the whole world and he reigns th through the creation order by means of magistrate, princes, rulers, there's no authority except for what God has ordained. And then particularly he reigns in the church, the word and sacraments, and through the hearts and consciences of, of individuals. What does this mean then if uh, there are unjust governments and there are everywhere? There's no such thing as a, perfect, a perfectly just government anyways. Well, it's important to realize when Paul wrote Romans 13, emperor, the, the emperor was likely Nero. And as Peter Vermeule notes, uh, the Roman Empire itself gained its imperial borders through violence, through wars, through gaining territory. So they are an empire who uh, rules by force. And Nero himself was known to be unethical, at least he became known to be so. Uh, so Paul gets that governments are not perfect. I mean, the Roman government killed Jesus. I don't think Paul, I mean, under Pilate anyway. I don't think Paul had any, like, doubt that there could be an injustice. The just was crucified by, in part at least, the, um, the allowance of an unjust ruling by Pilate. But he'll still note in Romans 13, there is no authority except for from God. And a ruler is God's servant for your good in Romans 13, 4. 
So Paul, not being ignorant of the obviously unethical aspects of the empire, the obviously the obvious failures of individuals in the empire, can still say that God ordains authority and that we need to submit to this authority and that this authority is in fact good and that this is uh, what God has appointed. How can he say that? Like, how can we rightly balance the idea that unjust authority clearly exists at all times, everywhere, in all governments, and yet God appoints this government itself? Well, there's a lot to this. Um, one thing I could say, and um, just for sake of time, I'm not going to explore it here, and I didn't really develop it actually, is that the actual power to judge right and wrong is what God appoints. But individuals can, of course, abuse that power. So individuals can be unethical or ethical, but the power to judge, uh, to protect, uh, the power of the sword itself is the good things that God has ordained. Now, nonetheless, all authority comes from God, even if people misuse that authority, uh, God will, of course, judge justly at the end of all things, even presidents and prime ministers and mayors and whoever else who have unjustly administered their rule. But this is probably another discussion. I just want to get into a few practical things that we can think through when it comes to unjust governments, because all of our governments are unjust. So the question is, how do we relate to them, generally speaking? So let me give you about four things. It's a short talk, and maybe in the discussion we can tease this out further, especially the idea of um, uh, God appointing these authorities and how these authorities can be unjust. Okay, first... The reformers emphasize that even an unjust ruler deserves reverence due to the office, even if the person is immoral. And the alternative is anarchy and rebellion, something universally condemned in all but the most extreme circumstances. Every government does wrong, and we lament that and hold our leaders accountable. But we have to accept that evil mixes with good governance in this age before Christ returns. Second, I think it's useful to note that we can distinguish between active and passive action. So, if the government, requ if the government requires you to murder someone, you, you don't do it. We submit to the punishment for disobedience or we flee or whatever, but we don't murder. If the government uses your tax money, however, for something unjust, well, then you vote for a change. You write leaders. You lobby in every legal way to change it. As Paul says in Romans 13, 7, you still need to pay your tax even if you disagree with what the government does with it. This is kind of a passive thing. You're, you are not uh, approving what they do, but you're not directly committing uh, the unjust actions yourself. You are paying honor to where honor is due and they'll be held accountable for it. You as a citizen do whatever you can to prevent injustice through every legal means possible, however. Third and most important to our current need is that we use the, teacher, the teaching of the lesser magistrate, which is developed in some detail uh, during the Reformation and afterward, I suppose, but in the Reformation in particular is, is what I'm talking about. Uh, this teaching affirms that every authority, while it's ordained by God, is still an authority and can keep other authorities accountable. So a lesser magistrate like a mayor can hold a premier accountable, or even a greater magistrate like the premier can hold a mayor accountable. The idea is that we have all sorts of people in leadership and we can back them, just like Luther was protected by an elector, Prince Frederick, or Elector Frederick is the right title, I suppose, uh, against Charles V, the Roman, the Holy Roman Empire's uh, emperor, who was calling Luther an outlaw. Luther was able to use protection from a legal, authoritative prince. 
Therefore, we can say you as a premier to uh, keep our prime minister accountable in Canada. Or our prime minister can keep a premier accountable. It's, the, it's a teaching about the lesser magistrate, but you could also say the lesser and greater magistrate, whoever it is. And the idea is that we use every legal means possible to resist something unjust through using appointed authorities because God has appointed them. And what we do is we're to encourage authorities to use this, uh, uh, this appointment well and wisely and justly and to even hold each other accountable. And that's how we as good citizens work um, within this world's system that will never be perfect, but will still be what we have. And fourth and lastly, if the government tells you what you can and cannot preach, you can only preach Romans 2, but not Romans 3, say, uh, if they try to tell you what sacraments you can and cannot use, because the word is attached to the sacraments, it's still a proclamation of the gospel, or they try to force you to deny your conscience, like in your conscience, you, if you believe that Christ is Lord, and they say, you must deny in your conscience Christ is Lord, you have the duty to resist. That is something outside of the realm of, of ability for the government to control. Because those are things that are actually part of the spiritual justification, the spiritual kingdom of God. Word and sacrament, the gospel essentially, that conscience that, that uh, believes strongly in the ascent of faith in that gospel. The magistrate can't touch. If they attempt to, if they say you need to swear um, that, that, the, that Caesar is the only Lord in your life, that would be to deny your conscience and to deny that spiritual reality. You can't do that. It, of course, uh, implies an outward disobedience in this case. However, you'd have no legal grounds in, in the reformed way of thinking for violent resistance. The only violent resistance you can do would be, I guess, in a just war scenario, or if you had a prince who was just and another prince who was unjust, you could perhaps serve in the military in this way. Now, that's a kind of another question and a lot of things to work out in terms of just war. I kind of want to leave that to the side, but perhaps we could always discuss that at a different time. But at the end of the day, your faith, your justification is secure with the Lord of Lords. Even if a local Lord wants to impede your faith, he simply cannot. Obviously, a lot more could be said. But here then, I just here is a very brief kind of overview of two kingdoms doctrine, two kingdoms political theology, if you want to call that. Uh, political theology. It is something founded in the Christian tradition. It is rooted in scripture and is worked out in the early reformers. Uh, we're here to talk about two kingdoms teaching, the idea of kind of a Protestant political theology. So I just kind of give a bit of, I give an overview of my talk, basically of Martin Luther, his circumstances, a little bit about this idea that we are you know, justified in spirit. But we live our life in the body. We are servants of all people. Um, and because we live this life, we are accountable to love our neighbor. We're accountable to do good works, to please God. We're accountable to obey and serve uh, the city in which we find ourselves. But there's also a real sense in which the magistrate civic government is ordained by God. It's authorized by God. And in a real way, the authorities create the material circumstances for the church to thrive in its mission. The government does not accomplish the mission of redemption, but the government provides peace and order so that the church can exist and meet and proclaim word and sacrament and so accomplishes mission here on earth on the way to our heavenly home and then i kind of ended by just talking about some things about like okay so every government's unjust in all time unless you're uh, ruled directly by christ 
it's just on a scale of injustice, right? So what does that actually mean? I don't really know if I love the question, how do you, what do you do with an unjust government? Because they're all unjust to some degree, right? Mm -hmm. We're all humans, we're all sinful. So uh, I kind of talk a little bit about that at the end where I say, look, one of the best strategies we have is one that is kind of rooted, I think, both in scriptural precedent, um, but also in Reformed Protestant theology. It's the, the doctrine or teaching of the lesser magistrate. So I know, Chad, you, you're kind of saying that you had maybe a question you could ask, or maybe you can start out by asking me or <laughs> drop yeah, no, a I mean, that, point in. That really flows out, too, from what I had said earlier in my talk with Augustine's view of the two cities. So we have the city of man, which is characterized by all this injustice and, and things going on, but it's temporary. And the city of God that's permanent and the church is interacting there. But as Christians interact, and as you kind of said, there's opportunities to be positively interacting and everything, and that develops that. So if we think about from, from what the reformers did, they were in a situation where they were in the minority and they had powerful governments that I guess in their view would have been being ruled by the principles of the city of man. How, how did they interact with those governments? Well, yeah, it's an interesting question. It, it's different everywhere. So if, if you lived in Switzerland, you actually basically had semi-democratic city-states. And so those governments were basically town councils, state council, uh, various councils. They would work, they might join them, mm. ask them questions, uh, but there's a very close connection when you lived in other places and you had basically big princes, there'd be a real sense in which you would feel obligated to serve under that prince because in one sense, everybody's religious. It was a public matter, right? <laughs> and the idea, by the way, of two kingdoms uh, doctrine, mm. it's really two reigns. It's the double reign of the one Christ. That they're overlapping. There's no, they are maybe, um, they're not distinct, but they're distinguished meaning everybody is under the, the reign of Christ in a general way. God reigns through creation. That's why there's natural law. There's laws of nature that are publicly accessible mm. because God made everything. But Christians as sort of a subset within this broader range also have a unique, uh, a unique mission. They have the Holy Spirit. They have word and sacrament. They have the keys by the gospel to forgive sin or to, or to not forgive sin. And so there, there's a kind of a unique... Uh, way in which Christians live in this world, but it doesn't actually change your accountability or your participation in the world at all. In fact, uh, a, a Christian can be a lawyer, a Christian can be a governor, all these sorts of things. And you, you probably would be yeah. in some ways better, not necessarily better in performance, but you know the particular end for why you're there. So that ends up being hmm. pretty important. I think the, the idea of two cities or the idea of two kingdoms sometimes gets construed as two completely independent realms. And that doesn't, that's not true. That's not how it works. We're all obligated while we live this life to have horizontal duties, to love your neighbor, to submit, to pay to Caesar, to what's, what's due to Caesar. One great illustration of this is Jeremiah 29. Um, Jeremiah is given a direct revelation from God. And he, it needs to go to the exiles. Jeremiah sends it, uh, I think it's one or two messengers, directly to the king of Babylon. King of Babylon receives that first and is able to kind of share it with the rest. Meaning that even a direct missive from God himself was carried along standard hierarchical lines of the governing authorities of that time. Because God respects those authorities because he's actually ordained them. Which is a massively important point to make. Um. I know that we did want to talk about the idea of greater and lesser magistrate. 
So in one sense, you guys are both lawyers. So you are doing, the, you're basically, you're the means by which we can approach the lesser magistrate. So I, I might briefly define it, then I'll let you guys maybe jump in and get some ob observations about this. But uh, in, in reform thought, the idea is, look, as an individual, you don't have the right really to go around being violent, start an insurrection. Uh, you don't have the right just to do whatever you want because all authority has been ordained by God and you should submit to authority and all those kinds of things. But that doesn't mean that you're a doormat, right? There are proper and right ways to resist authority. And there's greater and lesser magistrates. So a lesser magistrate is like a mayor or a city councilor who you approach and you say, this road is bad. <laughs> Make sure it gets fixed. <laughs> or you can say, there needs to be a highway in town. Go to the mayor, go to the city council, get it to happen. So it is appealing from a lesser magistrate to a, to a, a, uh, to a greater magistrate. Or the opposite is true. You can have a city councilor who is... Uh, not doing a good job and you go to the mayor and say look mayor go to this lesser like you need you it's you're obligated to do right you got to work on this so one of the things is that the actual protestant resistance theory is a way to respect these authorities because god's mm. given them to these people but it doesn't mm -hmm. say that every individual is perfect they sin right or make mistakes mm. they're inefficient how many people would say that our government has inefficiencies right like we, we all kind of know this no no, there's no, yeah, none at all. We're perfect. Um, there's anyways, <laughs> uh, but the, the point is you so, are meant to hold them. If whatever, mm -hmm. whatever kind of government you have, you can hold them accountable. You're it's totally mm -hmm. right to. So, so in given two illustrations of that, does this make sense? Wilberforce in the United Kingdom and ultimately through all of the British Commonwealth campaign for whatever it was 50 years to get rid of slavery. And he did it by working the mechanisms of parliament year in, year out, gaining allegiances and alliances and finally seeing a just law passed that affected everybody. And in 1776, the Americans had a riot and dumped tea into the into the ocean and started shooting people, which would be a different approach. And those I know that will, make, that will make people insensitive. And but it, it's just but it's it's totally those are very different approaches. But the Americans would have said that they were doing that based on the local people who lived in the United States. The, the, I don't know who their particular people were that the, the, the Continental Congress and its representatives mm -hmm. or whoever they put their their trust in for that point. But two very different ways. And we can make fun of the Americans rightly. But uh, <laughs> but uh, in, in a sense, they would both have justified what they were doing by that principle yeah probably and the wilberforce one is the easier more standard example because uh, revolution is is a tricky business anarchy is uh, worse than tyranny so you don't want that but revolution's a bit of a different beast um interesting with the american revolution i, I don't know all the enough details about this but they did actually have a congress they had uh, an articulated way of doing things so it probably does fall under the big picture idea of lesser magistrate representing a, an ordered revolution against a greater magistrate that is still working within the power structures that be. Mm -hmm. So you, you can argue about the rightness or wrongness of the details of it, but I think probably both would fit into this idea. The American revolution's trickier because of some of the ways it started, right? Mm -hmm. Like, mm -hmm. um, and uh, maybe it's a bit of an improper start and that's why there's some mm. ongoing problems. But anyways, as a Canadian, I don't want to necessarily dive my feet too deeply into American politics. But it's also a great example of another topic that I know we wanted to touch is like, what do you do with an unjust government? Mm -hmm. So maybe I'll throw this out to you guys. We're in Canada right now. 
And there are all sorts of restrictions. Some of them don't seem to be demonstrably justified. So British Columbia is maybe a great example. It's not clear. Uh, so businesses can open, but churches apparently can't. They can stream, yeah. but they can't open, right? Yeah. So where's the justification that's demonstrated there? So elsewhere, it seems more obvious. It's more, at least broadly administered. So in Ontario, for example, uh, we, we just came out of a recent lockdown, but pretty much everywhere had the same rules. Mm-hmm. And actually the opposite in Ontario, for the most part, churches have had greater freedoms of, of mm-hmm. gathering than anyone else. We've been privileged here beyond businesses. So yeah. it's a bit different in BC. So, so let me ask this, is this unjust? And if it is, mm-hmm. what do you think about this from, as like a, a legal point of view and maybe from the point of view of faith as well? I'll start if that's okay, Chad. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think I think you're right, Wyatt, that it varies from region to region. And, um, and, and, and not just in terms of the rules, but I think also in terms of the, the risks that each region are facing, because some regions have lower case counts, some have higher, uh, some have more of a presence of these new contagious variants and all of these things. And so, mm. um, you know, this is the tricky thing about um, reasonable limits is it does require the court to sometimes kind of look at uh, evidence that may fall outside of the individual judge's expertise. And so that's going to be really tricky here because we're going to be presenting epidemiological evidence and most, uh, not most, all judges are lawyers and very few of them are going to have a background in epidemiology. So there will be um, mm. some some very serious balancing that goes on. But I think the key at the end of the day is that there is going to be a value balancing. And the question is, we are taking risks. Which risks uh, are we willing to take? And the arguments that I think Christians should be making is, is basically saying, remember that uh, in terms of value, our constitution values religion as a public good. That's not us saying that. That's the charter, because the charter guarantees religious freedom and religious equality. Um, but, but litigation isn't the only way to do this. I like, I like the way you talked about the lesser magistrate, Wyatt, that you can go to the lesser magistrate, or you can even go over the head of the lesser magistrate. And so in some ways, litigation is going over the head of parliament because you're appealing to the constitution, which is the supreme law of the land. Uh, and the courts are going to be the one to interpret that. So sometimes litigation makes sense. Sometimes, uh, uh, advocacy makes sense by writing to your MLA or your MPP and, and hoping to try to um, effectively lobby the government that way to, to have your voice heard in parliament. And that's why we have representatives. They are, you know, they don't work for their party. They don't work for the government. It's actually, unless they're in cabinet, it's incorrect to say they are part of the government, even if they're in the government caucus, because they work for you. Uh, they are your representative. So if you have a concern, you can go to them and they hopefully will listen. And even if they don't agree, they will at least be made aware of your concerns. I want to add to that because it's very useful to say they represent us. And I think virtually everyone I've talked to who has spoken with uh, layers of administration, wherever that is <laughs> on the line, has had a, for, in terms of churches, has had a great experience. People have been mm-hmm. able to, to talk to you, responded well. Uh, gave clear answers, have been able to hear our complaints, hear our worries. In fact, I would say almost universally, I mean, government, or I know it's not technically government, but the broad term, a government is just people (laughs) who Mm -hmm. are elected for our sake. And I I, I just fear that maybe we put ourselves in an adversarial role Mm. towards these individuals by instead of actually appealing to them directly, calling them, conversing with them, working with them, we put ourselves in the role of calling them to do what they must 
rather than actually working through the authority and the hierarchical means that God has ordained, at least in our country at this time. Here's another one. Uh, public health units. Public health units, at least right. in Ontario, have a very broad authority. Um, mm -hmm. and, and technically, they can pretty much order whatever they want if it has a connection to public health. So a lot of these health units uh, could, in the, in the negative sense, decide to lock down churches even if the province isn't doing so. But conversely, uh, if you demonstrate to your public health unit that your church is taking, um, uh, you know, things like uh, mitigation protocols seriously, that can go in your favor. And the public health units can reach out to the government and say, hey, the churches are doing a good job here. Um, let's, you know, let's not punish them for doing what we've asked them to do. Yeah, that's right. a good point. We, we've had, uh, I can really only speak for the Alberta context, but we've had excellent responses uh, that way. I, I'm part of um, a kind of a town hall group that meets with the premier and the chief medical officer of health on occasion. And um, each of those have been excellent opportunities to ask questions and they've responded. I remember a few months back, we specifically asked them because they had no food service. So they said, you can't, can't do any food. You can't have any potlucks. You can't give out any food during your services. And so we said, what about, what about communion? And they said, well, let us come back to you on that. So they went and a couple weeks later, they came back and put out <laughs> guidelines for how to safely do communion. And, and they told us, they said, look, our whole thing is we want to help make, make you able to go ahead and do the, the valuable things you're doing in the best possible way. And so they've responded every time. And it's, it's quite interesting to think about that. That's helpful. And I, I just think from every, everything that I've heard, this is kind of how it works. Not that everyone will necessarily agree with you or do whatever you want. Except in but, BC, apparently. Except in BC, yeah. So <laughs> there's exceptions to the rule. That, that, I mean, that's a huge point to actually to note. No, so if you talk to people, they, they tend to work with you. And uh, I just think that we need to use these particular authorities in the way that they're structured because God's allowed it to be this way and has given us pretty clear instructions on how we ought to work within them. Now, uh, before we finish, I know, Chris, you had a kind of a question or a concern about spiritual and temporal authority. Can you kind of tease that out what that question was or what that concern was? Yeah. Well, and this is something that I've been wrestling through lately, thinking about uh, the nature of the two kingdoms and the nature in which... Uh, uh, the state exercises uh, temporal authority, but uh, as I understand it, we know that reformers such as Luther also placed the church in part within that temporal sphere. There is a, an element of what the church does that has a temporal aspect to it. So a few things that come to my mind, that would seem to me to not just be um, a, a limiting of, of what the state can do by saying to the state, hey, you belong to this temporal sphere, by saying that the church belongs to that same temporal sphere, we're acknowledging that there is a, a public aspect of faith. And, and this kind of goes against that classical liberal mm -hmm. impulse to want to divide the public and the private. And so we turn the spiritual into the private and the temporal into the public. Well, the work of the church, there is an invisible spiritual element in terms of uh, uh, what, what Jonathan Lehman says, um, exercising the keys of the kingdom. Uh, declaring the what and the who of the gospel, but there is also another temporal aspect, which you might say, again, to borrow Lehman's language, that's an eschatological declaration. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I just wanted your thoughts on that, because um, again, I'm not really sure if this is a good way of thinking about it, or if this is consistent with what the reformers thought. Just, just before Wyatt answers that, whether this muddies the water or just adds to it, if you compare Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2, 
Romans 13 says Christians submit themselves to government authorities, to the emperor, or whatever, whatever, uh, because they are ministers of God mm. to to exercise justice, to punish the evildoer, to reward the good. And in 1 Peter 2, it says we're to submit to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the emperor as supreme or to the governor or those who are appointed by him to do his will to punish wrong and do right. It's interesting that government then that has a temporal sphere seems to also have a spiritual component mm. to it. I don't mm -hmm. know, just whatever. Sorry if that... Well, I mean, that's no, that's almost back the, the exact point we are talking about earlier is look... These are actually, in one sense, our co-workers. They have distinctions in what they're actually accomplishing. So the, the common good of a temporal leader is for peace and order to restrain evil and all these things. But they're actually part of the way in which God administers the world. Therefore, if you're a Christian, the at least the idea of this authority is a partner authority. Now, individuals, of course, can persecute Christians and can be all over the place. So that doesn't always work out. That's how it ought to be. I mean, this is the ideal, how it ought to be, right? I'm not saying that, that it always is. Yeah, I mean, the reformers were, were, were pretty okay with an overlap in certain ways, uh, but there were some pretty key distinctions. So I'm just looking at Peter Vermeule here, who's uh, mm -hmm. one of the key reformers in the early, early to mid 16th century uh, from Italy in the mainland, also in the English Reformation as well. And he makes the point here, um, that, um, however, it does not follow from this that they are themselves not subject to political power with respect, mm. this is the church, to physical existence, possessions, lands, houses, and general ethical behavior. Mm. Indeed, even with regard to the function of the ecclesiastical office itself, they ought to be subject to a pious and religious magistrate. Uh, we, do, we do not suppose that the word of God or the sacraments should be subject to human laws. So that's the distinction, the word of God and sacraments. They're not subject to human mm -hmm. laws. Now, I'll, I'll note on that because I want to explain what that means in a second. Nevertheless, the office of magistrate is either to punish or to remove ministers if they behave themselves badly in the hmm. execution of their office, if they corrupt the truth, or if the minister of the, if they minister the sacraments falsely. Uh, he goes on to talk about that. There's, here's the overlap, too, as well. For just as a king, however great he may be in excellence and dignity, dignity, ought for all that to obey the word of God pronounced by the minister of the church, so also an ecclesiastic though he be placed in a distinguished office, is not exempt from obedience and sub subjection to the magistrate. So there's, a, there's an overlap. But in short, the thing that, the, that human law can't touch is word and sacrament. And if you're, mm -hmm. if you're a reformed uh, sacraments of baptism and Lord's Supper, uh, those are always the communication of the word. That's how they mm -hmm. get redefined in the Reformation. So baptism is the word. The Lord's Supper is the word communicated. In this case, it's Christ communicated. Uh, the preaching the word is Christ, the word communicated. So what they're saying is, and it's, it's an agreement with Luther, that the particular um, realm of responsibility that the church has is word and sacrament. That is communicating mm -hmm. Christ. If mm -hmm. a uh, government leader comes and says, you cannot uh, preach Christ in this way, or you cannot administer baptism this way you have to do this kind of baptism um or if they come in and say uh, the lord's supper ought to be done in a different way it needs to be about transubstantiation or something right, right. that goes beyond but because these are the sort of mm -hmm. interior spiritual duties of the church pretty much everything else though they would say is you submit to this kind of outward authority so it could be the actual building <laughs> the actual place where you can meet uh, ministers themselves, if they sin or 
or make mistakes, the governor should, or the, this guy, the police or whatever should come and arrest them. Um, they're all subjugated. So that kind of agrees with Luther. It's pretty consistent among the reformers that they give a lot of authority to the magistrate over what we would consider very churchy things. What they Charitable don't give authority over is your yeah. conscience, what you internally believe, the actual word communicated to you and to others. Mm. So if you're preaching the gospel, communicating the word, and they say, don't do that, you say, well, we need to obey God rather than men. So my question on that would be how that tweaks because, so we'd say everyone acknowledges that that building codes, fire code capacity, yeah. uh, these are all sort of the normal realm. We all accept that everybody's buildings. What happens when the magistrate then begins using those, we're not going to give, we're not going to allow this to be zoned for a church. I think we see a lot of that happening in China, for example, today. Right. Mm-hmm. How does yeah, that I mean- then kind of interact? Well, I would say two things. One, you use every means necessary so that you, you find ways to do it. I think as China is an interesting situation because we're not insiders. We can't actually say too much with confidence, but there, there, there seem to be ways to get around things there that involve working with people. Yeah. I, so, I, and I know that there are people then who maybe are persecuted, not part of the state church. I don't have enough knowledge to kind of give that exact circumstance, but what I would say is use every means necessary. You've been in the house, you meet wherever you can. You meet in smaller groups, you make the church smaller, make it cells, whatever you do. But there's going to be a point where, look, to be the church means to, to preach word and sacraments. And if you can't do that, you really can't be the, what the church is. So this is different than a temporary stay due to a pandemic or a temporary stay due to a war or a temporary stay, stay due to a bombing over London or something like that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think there comes to a point where you have to minister word and sacrament. And that might mean that you do what you do and let the consequences come to you. One, one kind of final thought maybe um, on, on that idea of conscience that you raise, Wyatt. And, and I agree with you that the state um, does not as assert that kind of conscience over uh, or that authority over the conscience of, of the believer as it pertains to word and sacrament. Um, but I think there is, would you agree, a sense in which what the state does does take on a role of conscience binding in, in a certain way. So when the state says, you shall not murder, that's not a morally neutral declaration. It is, uh, in one sense, binding your conscience toward a certain um, disposition. And so if uh, this is, again, I'm, I'm kind of just asking right. the open question. This is something I've been thinking of. If we broadly think of the state's authority as encompassing uh, matters pertaining to the second greatest commandments, uh, to, to punish what is wrong, but also to reward what is good, mm. then there's a sense in which we're being oriented, our consciences are being oriented toward the fulfillment of that commandment, even if they're not being bound right. in the same spiritual sense. Does, does that make yeah, sense? It that does. So there's three things I know. So like, for example, in Calvin's Geneva, just to give an illustration of this, they found, okay, look, if we try to administer charity across the city, I think it's not just Geneva either, other places. Um, it doesn't work well. We're actually bad at it. So what they did is they put their common wealth together and they appointed uh, city people, civic leaders to distribute charity to the entire city. Hmm. Um, so there's actually ways when I mean, the church in this case can partner together with the city in order to distribute charity. It's, that's happened. It's not always horrible. If it works, if it's a good way to do it, it's, it's okay. Um, okay. Now getting to our actual thing about conscience. So First, earlier, I was thinking more about the idea in your, your conscience is bound 
because you have an assent to faith in Jesus Christ as Lord. Mm -hmm. So if they come to you and say, no, you need to say Caesar is Lord. You, your conscience is bound. No, I can't. So I wasn't actually talking about the issue that you're getting at, but it's, it's useful that you brought up because it's probably the miscommunication that's implied by what I said. So are they binding your, your conscience? Well, in a sense, yeah. I mean, uh, civic leaders sh- should be republishing natural law, which is binding because it's part of God's eternal law. Right. Don't murder is something that everybody should avoid doing. Or That's a weird because it's negative, but don't murder. <laughs> that's always yeah. correct. That's always the correct answer. It's never the, the false answer. And so this does happen. But there's also a distinction to be made between uh, does the government require you to do something like mm-hmm. murder or like extreme evil? So the government mm-hmm. says you need to go kidnap someone and harm them. You mm-hmm. say, no, I can't do that. And then they'll arrest you or whatever, but you or you flee. But even, if, even better, or, maybe for your illustration, are yeah. the Good Samaritan laws that we have here. Okay. Um, I don't know if it's the same in Ontario, Chris, but um, if if I see someone in harm or suffering or drowning, um, I'm not obligated to do anything to preserve their life or to help them. I could just mm. walk away. But uh, but if I do go and help them, and my help renders the situation worse, I'm protected in that what mm. I was doing was trying to help them. So if I go and do CPR and inadvertently I break their ribs and it punctures along and they pass away, mm. but I was doing everything within any knowledge that I had to try to help them. I'm shielded and protected from liability. Um, some places don't have that. So, so people are inclined not to help because you might be severely punished by the state for your attempt to help. So there's a place where the state has said, no, no, we want to encourage helping. So we're going to mm. protect you from liability. Okay. So you can do that. Well, that's mm-hmm. it, that they're contributing to the common good in this particular scenario. Yeah. And the, the last distinction I make then is there's a, there's a sense in which we uh, we pay taxes to whom taxes are owed because the office they're they're part of the office and they deserve those taxes. Oh yeah. But they often use it for for unjust means, things we clearly don't support. We think are immoral. So we don't actually violently go and, and stop things. We don't right. uh, have a a revolution. We don't go to anarchy. But instead, we vote, we appeal to the lesser magistrate, we do everything in our means in order to pursue the civic good in legal ways. But that's a key distinction. So our conscience, I don't think, while we're contributing to this whole system that where maybe injustice happens, we're free because uh, taxes are due to whom taxes are due. So Romans 13, 7 is very clear on this. Jesus was clear on this. Um, But remember, the the emperor is is probably Nero. Uh, The Roman Empire dominated the world through force and killing. <laughs> mm-hmm. They're not a just government. They're, they're a government under whom Christ, the just one, was crucified. Mm-hmm. And yet mm-hmm. Paul can say, that the, you actually still owe them taxes, even though they're using it for these horrible means. The reason you owe them taxes is because the particular authority that they have is from God. Now, the individual can use that authority for weal or for woe. Mm-hmm. And it's bad if they use it for woe, but the authority itself granted to them is still... The, the necessary condition for us to pay taxes and to give honor, not them as an individual person, even though we would still need to hold them accountable. Mm-hmm. So now we're, we're kind of getting to the end of maybe we need, we need to stop because of time, but are there any kind of last minute observations or things you guys want to say? This is kind of the end of our, our first little online conference. Or anything that you guys want to kind of finish with or thoughts or even a, a further question on this topic? Uh, you know, I, I just say, I think that, 
everything that we've talked about hopefully puts us in mind that we as the church has a role to play in our society and we ought to try to do it in a way that is wise and winsome and i think why you brought up earlier and chris has talked about it we get into this confrontational mindset that we don't need to be mm-hmm. in um sure of course confrontations come but, but we're supposed to as much as depends on us live at peace with all men and i think mm-hmm. we need to do that even when we're advocating uh and asserting our freedoms or rights if it happens to be a <laughs> section 15 <laughs> what, whatever whatever it happens to be that we're, we're working on we may do that but we should still do it in a way that has that um that wise winsome um cooperative bearing to it yeah, no, I agree. And, and Wyatt, I think this kind of ties back into the point you were making earlier about um, the state essentially being a minister of God or, or, or members of the state being ministers of God. That doesn't leave room really for a lot of anti-statism in Christianity. Yeah. Uh, and, and so uh, even where we are, are put at odds, um, you know, the, we have the wisdom to draw on of doctrines like the lesser, uh, the lesser magistrate to uh, to resist um, unjust uses of authority in a way that still respects the broader structure. So when it comes to civil disobedience, for example, um, I think as much as we can, we try to avail ourselves of those options uh, and we try to work within the system because even if you're at odds with a particular agent of the state, um, you aren't disrespecting their authority by going above their head, as it were, or by appealing to the constitution, because that is the source of their authority. And so you're just holding them accountable uh, to, to that system and to that law. Hmm. Well, good words, guys. Thank you so much for this. I know there's so much more we could have said and didn't say and probably mistakenly said, but <laughs> this is a good time just to kind of hang out, talk, and to share kind of a collective thinking on this topic of religious freedom in Canada. So thank you for both of you for being here. Thank you.